Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, moderator of meaningful conversations and convener of community. Whether you are or know someone who is battling multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, scleroderma, lupus, or any of the 24 autoimmune diseases that HSCT can halt, or are simply inspired by transformational journeys, you are in the right place. As we continue to grow the HSCT warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. We are glad you've joined us. Welcome to episode, this will be 11. Holy Moses. I kept thinking about numbers and meaning and what's the meaning and I don't know that there is, but 11 apparently is a very powerful number astronomically. So astrologically. (laughs) (laughs) So thank you for being here. Of course. And the powerful number of 11 in the space of the 11th episode of the HSCT Warriors podcast. We say it hematopoietic. I had stem, no idea cell, how to that. stem cell transplant is what HSCT stands for. And it is good to clarify that occasionally. Um, it's referring to an autologist's stem cell transplant procedure, which is actually a chemo based therapy that uses stem cells from my own body or your own body. Yeah to uh, return back to you. So we don't get stem cells from someone else or donors. There's no um, fear of rejection. Our bodies acclimate real easy to our own cells. So it's all you. It's all me. (laughs) And if you were to go through it, it would be all you, right? Right. Um, So this podcast is designed to illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, but also help illuminate the journeys of veterans and folks going through HSCT because it is such an involved process that can be overwhelming at times. And when I went through the process myself, I didn't know or understand enough about what I was up against because I didn't do enough research. I just, once I found it, I knew it was the option for me. And a lot of people do do the research, but there have been so many questions out there still about, yeah. well, what does this even mean? I don't know where to begin. And so I'm grateful that you're taking the time to talk with me and, and lead my interview today because I think you've had similar questions and curiosities. Yeah. And so even being able to answer your questions about the procedure and what it's like and your hesitations. Yeah can help me tell my story and also address maybe even some of your questions and concerns and thoughts and ideas from the perspective of somebody that's curious about HSCT. And so it's an honor to be sitting here with you (laughs) um, to have this conversation. Joining me today is Sarah. Sarah Leah Miller. Um, I have had MS since, well, my first uh, relapse was in 2003 and was finally diagnosed after a misdiagnosis um, in 2004. So I've been living with it for 14 years, 
taking a lot of different drugs for it. <laughs> Almost all of Almost them. Almost all right? of them. The, yeah. And so what has that even been like in terms of trying one? And I don't, I know that I tried one drug for a year and it failed. Yeah. At least I was showing new lesions. And so within that first year, the doctor just said, well, here's your next option. Right. And kind of handed me that next box or packet of information to research. And Yeah. Well, the, the, my very first doctor, um, just a regular old neurologist at a mm-hmm. Baptist health center in Birmingham, um, was like Ben Stein and, he like he said he looked and sounded like him. It was very funny. <laughs> but he um basically was one of those people that was like, Well, you know, some people say you could do this, but some people could say you could do that. And then you just choose what you want to do. Like there was no guidance. Mm. No, you know, Pick I had one. Yeah, the first drug that I was on was Copaxin and I mm. had a allergic reaction to it. Pretty pretty soon into starting to take it and that was like my you know that's your first drug that you're taking for this disease you don't understand and you're like crap it's gonna be like this the whole time like what is it gonna be like right um i've had relapses over the years i've had times that where i was in remission for a while and then you know something bad would happen you know, and I'd have a more in-depth relapse. And instead of just kind of trying to explore what that means with the medication that I was taking at the time, a few times it was like, okay, well, that's not working. Let's just try something else, you know? So, so which I don't know if is necessarily the best, um, the best choice to make for a doctor, but, you know, I just kind of trusted in it. Mm-hmm. Um Lately, I've been pretty stable, which is good. But seeing your progress and seeing what you've had to go through, you know, our friendship is pretty new, but you know, with three yeah. years or so. Right. But like seeing what you've dealt with these last couple of years and knowing what a difference this has made for you, it's made me curious as well. Um, but also, I'm just glad to be here to kind of support you through this today because it's important and it's great so thank you enough about me let's talk well about but you. i but but you're part of it and yeah i know and i think that when we first met i was already seated at a bar yeah and when the introduction was made and oh well we've both got ms and you're like you know i've been dealing with it for so long and i've had like i've done i've tried every drug and so if you ever have a question about what a relapse is like or this and and then i watched you run across the street (laughs) and i was like oh well i might be able to teach her a few things because i can't run anymore (laughs) like i can't even that there's not i can vividly remember the last time i like hustled upstairs yeah and remember i can remember thinking man i can't believe i can still do this this might be the last time i ever do this yeah and it was like I've not ever since been able to actually hustle upstairs, even post-transplant, and that's okay. I think the promise of transplant is to halt progression. Right. And because it has halted progression, and now that I'm a year out and know that my disease is not going to get worse, 
Yeah. I can go to sleep at night and not dread the relapse tomorrow that might happen tomorrow morning. Yeah. That is all too familiar, right? And so I'm so glad you've been doing well. Yeah. Without significant relapse for some time and the drugs have worked, but that's where I think we've mentioned that there's that fear of you've cycled through so many of them. Yeah. And then there's really nothing left and it's you know, my my relapses have gone from every really everything that you can think of a relapse could be I've had over time. So I've had optical neuritis in both eyes, not at the same time, thank goodness. Because once I finally, fa- I just literally, I just looked up, well, what is optic neuritis? And it's like loss of vision in yeah, an eye. Yeah, I was like I'm a like, pirate. Well, I, I've had that. Yeah. But in both eyes, but nobody ever classified it as that. Yeah, it like, was... That was the second relapse that where I actually got diagnosed. I was in class and all of a sudden half of my professor's face on one side like was gone and then over I mean honestly a couple minutes just I couldn't even see through that eye anymore. And it wasn't like it was black like you would expect blindness to be from your, you know, TV and movies and stuff like that. It was like doo-doo brown. <laughs> so and and so i you know that i went to my um my ophthalmologist who is a family friend and he was like yeah this is this is actually something different because before before that it was transverse myelitis is what they thought i had because most of my activity was in my spinal cord and so maybe i didn't have optic neuritis but i definitely had spells where my vision would turn into like the old old school TV when you get snow on a channel because of whatever. I mean, and optical neuritis can be many things. It doesn't have mm -hmm. to just be doo-doo brown. (laughs) You know, it, it really, um, it's loss of vision. It's loss of vision. Mm -hmm. It's your, your, um, optic nerve becoming inflamed. It's a nerve like any other, our wonderful nerves all over our body that do all this stupid things to us all the time. So, um, (laughs) And so maybe I had it and maybe the doctors just didn't name it for what it was or no. Yeah. And so I think I started having symptoms in high school in terms of shocking pains, weird, unexplainable numbness. Mm -hmm. I was tested for diabetes in my early 20s and started having MRIs in my early 20s because the symptoms I described, and I always attributed it to carrying heavy trays in restaurants, right? That maybe I'm just, I have pinched nerves somewhere. And so I had MRIs every year and neurologists and neuroscientists and neurosurgeons and everyone telling me that it was all in my head, that I didn't have this pain, that there was no reason or cause or because I was otherwise healthy and completely well-functioning. Right. Um, so when you were diagnosed 2004, you mm-hmm. said, and I wasn't diagnosed until 2010. And we're really close to the same age, too. In fact, I'm seven months older than yeah, you. Yeah, that's it. Graduate in 96. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, like, just the years of questioning and one, like, my, all of my 20s. Yeah. Were just this big question mark until I was 32 when I was diagnosed. Yeah. 
And the very next day, so that night I went home and I was just like, what am I going to do? I don't even know what this means. All I know is that my uncle has been living with MS for 40 plus years and he's considered an anomaly. Right. That he's traveled the world seeking out experimental treatment because what's here in this country is not working for him. And he wanted to live his best life. And... I saw him succeed in that right? and be very mobile still. He just made it into a wheelchair in, the, I'd say, the last five to six, seven years. How old is he now? 70-something. Wow. He's an amazing Especially anomaly. That generation. Absolutely. Too, you know, and th- I think that was one of the hardest things for me. Um, like you, like I got home after I was diagnosed and I remember sitting on the couch watching summer stock with gene kelly and judy garland and just crying my eyes out you know because i just didn't really understand it at all i think one of the things that's great about you know having not great about having this disease but like (laughs) what what what's interesting you know you talk about like how you didn't do a lot of research but really we do a lot more research than most people mm-hmm. that have any kind of physical ailment because it is such a mysterious disease and you kind of go like okay so that thing where i jump in the middle of the night because i feel like somebody's stabbing an ice pick in my ear is that part of it or is that just i'm weird right <laughs> you know? or getting old or right. like i'll i'll still if i'm really super tired i get those ice picks yeah, yeah. i don't even know what they're necessarily called but I'll just basically just jump right out of bed, you know, Um, like I've seen something super scary, but instead it was like just jolting pain. And I think I scare him like every time. Well, those are my shocking pains, right? Yeah. They're gone. Oh, you lucky duck. (laughs) That's transplant. Yeah. Like I don't have that experience anymore and I don't have the neuropathy anymore. And I don't know if you've gotten to this wavering yet. Not yet. It's Everything felt like... I just met a vet when I was in Chicago for my one-year follow-up. I met a guy who is four years post-transplant. And he was describing that he no longer has that wavering anymore. Yeah. And how phenomenal that is. And I'm so glad you're not there yet with your progression. <laughs> but the whole point of this is to stop it stop yeah. the disease where it is so that it doesn't so that you don't have that wavering because I was falling down so much because I felt like I was wavering back and forth all the time yeah. like drunk and she's pointing at my beard <laughs> <laughs> but it was easier for me to navigate in like a crowded bar a crowded space yeah because especially where people were drinking because they didn't notice <laughs> that I, right like yeah. I didn't look any different from anybody else and it, because when you have this condition if you will and noticeable disability yeah. people stare and people judge and people question and wonder and like it's so old yeah and so part of what I want to do even with this podcast is help any listener out there recognize and understand we're not all drunk (laughs) there are reasons neurologically in our brain with lack of balance and or those shocking i mean my leg used to kick out in the middle of a meeting yeah like oh 
I don't, and that, you know, like you try to disguise it and shake your leg and maybe that spasticity no, remaining, but yeah, you know, it's, um, trying to fit in as, and be as normal as possible ultimately ends up feeding the disease, right? Right. Because that anxiety behind trying to look something that you're not. And you're you're spending so much energy suppressing those mm-hmm. things that you don't have any energy left to actually deal with them. I know that right. completely. Yeah. 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 So So I think um it's good to Find that familiarity and commonality, which is another goal of this podcast, yeah. right? And, right? And recognize that even though we are in very different places with our – how far our disease has progressed, right. that we still share these commonalities yeah. of the label of sure. MS, right? And One of those things that I – I know that it's one of those – those statements that they always quote in the different MS magazines and all that stuff, but they're like, but you look so good, you know, you look fine. And, um, yeah, I look fine. You look fine. I clearly do not look fine. <laughs> but, I mean, <laughs> I have actually, you know, I had to use a walker that first year mm-hmm. for part of the year. I had to go to physical therapy. I had to wear an eye patch like a pirate for a while mm-hmm. and each eye respectively, you know, like I, I know what it is to feel um, on the outside when you have this sort of disease. And even though I look pretty normal these days, my gait's pretty good, you know, um, I do remember those days, even, you know, times last year when I had the relapse and was not feeling good at all about, I got around okay, it was fine, but... It's not fine. It's not fine. I know, but you know what I mean. Yeah. You have to make it fine. Yeah. In order to make it through to the next day and wake up the next day and keep that positive attitude. Yeah. Today, tomorrow, if today is not great, tomorrow might be better. It's true. That's actually quite true. Which is exhausting. <laughs> it is so exhausting. <laughs> and, it, you know, like I don't take any pain med- medication during the day because, I mean, my job, I... um. I work for a mental health agency and help our clients get food assistance and Medicaid and have to be multitasking and on, on all the time, all the time. Cause I have 3,300 cases I'm working, you know, and it's like, I can't take any extra pain medication. No. I just deal with it, you know? And luckily I, ha- it's not so bad that I can't deal with it, but it is definitely fatiguing to sit through your day with your legs burning, you know? Absolutely. Feeling like there are needles on the bottom of your feet. Yes. Those are super On fire. Super fun. <laughs> well, and that's, like, I used to wear tennis shoes all the time because it was the only way my feet oh, man. could stand to walk. So my first job at where I work, I worked in medical records back when we didn't have electronic medical records. So it was all these big binders full of paper. And my boss at that time, you know, was like, can you stand up for hours? I'm like, yes, I can. And shortly after I started the job, I had to be like, surprise. (laughs) And um, my grandmother, she was 90 years old, sent me house shoes to wear at work because that is the only way I could stand up for that long. But I didn't want to be different, you know, like I didn't, Mm -hmm. I didn't want my boss who was a new boss, you know, even though he probably couldn't go like 
you're gone, you know, but right. I wanted him to know that I was dedicated and strong enough to keep this job, you know? So I wore these like off white house shoes with like palm trees on them Nice. in a place that may or may not have had a bed bug problem. At the end of the time. <laughs> It was it was dangerous on all fronts, but it was you know it's what I had to do to get through the day, and without keep... requesting an official accommodation, yeah. which is unfortunate because we should be supported by all employers. And in in the future years, as mm. you know, my boss saw my work that work ethic and everything. Like he was more like, you know, he got me this magical stool that I could put my feet on, so they were elevated. You know, like little things that made a difference and it's because I was honest and open and still express the fact that I want to be here I want to do this job and it wasn't just about keeping my keeping my health insurance it was <laughs> you know it was it was about you know being part of an organization that I really liked working for mm-hmm. so um although the health insurance was definitely a, a thing that has kept me there for 10 years you know in a way so well, they see your investment in yeah. them and your quality of work, and yeah. they remain invested in you, and that makes it a healthy environment for you to be yeah. in and not be as stressed Yeah, and be able to express yourself, and it's amazing you have those supports. Yeah, I I feel really lucky, you know. I, I also do think that, like, just maybe it's my personality or just, like, how I – go through life, you know, but being able to be honest with them mm-hmm. and getting support I from the people that should be going like, really, you know, can you do this? But I probably try too hard to prove that I can do this, you know, which it's is part of the disease, <laughs> which is good, which is probably why I had that relapse last year, but that's cool. Well, it's part of the disease, yeah. right? Because we want to be strong enough. And we want to be normal and we don't want to be living in this pain. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have the fortune of having a good doctor that explained any of this to me. So like, I'm sure with one of your first relapses, you, your doctor helped guide you through what to do and what it would look like for them to support you through it was Ben Stein, so kind of not the actually Ben Stein, but like I said before. So it was, but honestly, the person who diagnosed me was a doctor at UAB, which is the University of Alabama mm-hmm. in Birmingham. And through him, not my regular person, because he was so overbooked that I just couldn't really see him very often, mm-hmm. if at all. I just stayed with my guy. But he, you know... They, yeah, definitely. I had somebody who was like, this is what to expect. But also, I mean, it wasn't that deep. It was just small things. And what I ended up doing was just going on Amazon and buying as many books about MS as Mm. I possibly could. There's even one called like your first year with MS that was like so valuable. Yeah. See, so I was diagnosed and the guy, he had resisted my requests for MRIs. My left arm went numb. I had been under a lot of stress, and stress is the killer, right? And so I had um, 
been under a lot of stress and hadn't had an MRI for maybe a year or two. And my left arm went numb, and I thought it was a yoga injury. And so I insisted on an MRI just mm-hmm. to see, like, there's got to be something else going on. I mean, he ran, like, 200 blood tests. We collected urine for three days. He gave me the wrong container, so then I had to do it again. <laughs> Fun. It was misery, right? <laughs> and so then I just kept insisting, MRI, and it turns out that that MRI, I don't even know. I may, I might have had 11 lesions total in my brain. And they were all in your brain and not on your spine? I Well, it, I might have had some on my C-spine. Yeah. Um, I do have some on my thoracic spine as well. Mm-hmm. And then, so basically, I think I had 11 or 12 lesions. Wow. And he says, you know, well, it's MS. And I said, well, but are you sure? Because <laughs> I don't want that diagnosis. <laughs> and he's like, well, weren't you kind of expecting it? Or isn't that kind of what you were looking for? And I'm like, well, no. But... Okay, so then he just literally hands me the boxes of Capaxone and something else. He's like, just go home and start figuring out which one you want to take, and then we'll get you started. And I'm like, okay, but what does this mean? Like, is is my life over? This is devastating, and how am I going to cope with this? My husband and I had just been talking about the idea of maybe – getting pregnant like Mm -hmm. if it happened it happened we weren't gonna try but we were at the point where okay maybe we could think about raising another human being and so that night it was just that turmoil of emotion and thankfully the next day I went to work talked with my boss who actually his wife had recently passed away due to complications with MS oh wow he had created a position for me And kind of stole me away from a different place Mm -hmm. and was just super sympathetic and very much like, you know, I wanted a second opinion from the doctor I just met with because he was just such a jerk about the way he laid this all in my lap and asked him, like, who did your wife work with and what was their relationship like and do you could you recommend another doctor locally? And so he was very concerned and supportive and he had said to me you know not to pry or be directive but if you and Andy ever thought about having children like now's the time because pregnancy can offset your symptoms although they can flare up after you have the baby like early in your diagnosis is the time to have children and (laughs) So then I go home and I'm still in this roller coaster of emotional whirlwind, right? And how could we even think about having a child? That's crazy. I can't, like, I can't even fathom the diagnosis for the rest of my life, let alone raising another human being at this point. But (laughs) Andy looks at me and he says, Well, what if you already are pregnant? And I said, What? There's no, what? What? He's like, No, think about it. You're late. Like, you're already a week or two late. And I said, said hey he's like no really he paid more attention than I did (laughs) went out to the store bought pregnancy tests and they were all positive whoa I don't know if I knew that story so literally like all of a sudden it was I don't have MS I have a baby inside me that I need to take care of and so really 
I don't need to stress about this diagnosis. I need to just focus on being healthy. Right. I need to cut out all the crap from my diet. I need to stop all of my bad habits and I need to just be healthy and focus on that. And so I didn't do my research. I started my research on what it, what I need to be doing as yeah for pregnancy. Like, and I felt amazing and I had a phenomenal pregnancy with no complications, barely any morning sickness. And so even after I had Adelaide, and had the surgery, the cesarean section, because she was 10 full pounds Holy and Moses. full breech, sitting the wrong way, and did two manual versions, which is very, very unpleasant. But trying to do everything natural possible, because one of the things my boss had said to me was, like, don't, whatever you do, don't get um, the epidural. Right. Because they put that into your spine, and that creates another place in your spine for MS. To occur, right? At least that was his theory. And his wife always thought or was convinced that she had complications in her spine because of the epidural and where it was placed. And who knows if that's true, but it's... It's a mystery. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Maybe. And so I was doing everything. I did hypnobirthing, training. Nice. um, Did the two manual versions, was convinced I was going to have this completely natural birth and then... She ends up being 10 pounds full of breach and they wouldn't let me. So it's okay because she's still a healthy kid and it was still a healthy delivery and still a healthy pregnancy. And afterward, even for two to three years, I felt great. And my doctor was like, yeah, but you've still got MS and you haven't started any meds. And so you should really like this is can be an aggressive disease and. You really need to get on medication. I'm like, yeah, but I I mean, I feel fine. I look fine. Yeah. I'm functioning fine. I'm hiking miles at a time. I'm camping. I'm living life. I love my life. It's all good. And she said, yeah, but this is like it'll sneak up on you when you least expect it. You need to just get on a drug to help keep yeah. things at bay. And so I agreed to start Tecfidera when it first came on the market. Oh, yeah. In 2013. Mm-hmm. So there was all the hype about it and all the marketing. And... Selenio is around the same time. So. Yes. Yeah. And so she, I didn't care about needles so much, but she was saying, you know, this is going to be the best thing, the best, latest, newest drug, right? That's what you want to start on. So I did, and that weekend I hiked five miles. And by the end, like, my legs were burning from fatigue. Yeah. But I did it, and Mm. it's a strenuous hike. And also hiked the sand dunes in Michigan. Oh, wow. (laughs) In Traverse City. Yeah. Like, maybe that was a couple weekends later for my dad's 70th birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a couple weeks later. No problem. Hiked the sand dunes. Wow. There's not a chance. I mean, (laughs) you saw me coming up your stairs to get in here today, and I have to take one step at a time because my left knee sometimes just doesn't want to bend, and your steps are a little high Mm -hmm. than what my knee likes to bend. And so to be safe and not trip and fall on my face or fall down the stairs, yeah, one step at a time. And sometimes that's all we can do, right? But... It was aggravating to think that 
is this the meds making me worse? Right. Because so, you want to believe that meds are so helping. You, so what you're saying is once you started taking the Tecfidera, um, the your symptoms got worse? Significantly worse. Interesting. And so even at the end of the year, my primary care physician was noticing your walking is not good. Mm-hmm. This shouldn't be happening to you. You might have something else going on. Like, I wonder if this is actually Lyme disease. And I'm like, oh, I've got a diagnosis. I'm on the meds. You know, maybe I'm just having a stressful week. I'm sure it'll be fine. Like, I'll be fine. We'll see how the year of these drugs go. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the year, so my neurologist quit. And left and went to work for a pharmaceutical company. Who was that? Dr. Melanson. That was mine uh-huh. when I first met you. Yeah, we talked about she that. She was phenomenal. She was amazing. But she left yep. and went to work for a pharmaceutical company. So I don't know if it Biogen and I don't know if they sell Tecfidera. I can't rem- I cannot keep all of them straight. But And nor should we have to. Right. But it's interesting that... She really not, I wouldn't say pressuring me, but she was really strongly advocating I need to be on something to right. keep my symptoms at bay. Well, and that's actually pretty normal. Absolutely. But yeah. I didn't, like, I had no other experience. Right. And she hadn't really explained to me what a relapse would look like or yeah. what to do if I experienced a differing in symptoms or if my, like, but it could be your walking, or it could be shocking pains, or it could be jerks in the middle of the night, or it could be tremors, or it could look like any of these number of things. Yeah. That that's a relapse, and that you should call us and get like a backup of steroids, or, or steroids right. is the course of treatment, and steroids are not a scary thing or a bad thing. And so once she left the practice, then I was hooked up with her nurse practitioner, yeah, who clearly didn't know... I, I don't remember, remember her name. I know her name. Blonde hair. Yeah. And she was a hot mess. <laughs> she was sweet enough, but she was always talking about herself and her problems and her family and her situation and on and on and on and no, on. No, I know exactly. And was so, about. so, so, so busy. Yeah. I didn't even think about having a different conversation about. So, like, I just noticed. They didn't really talk about what a new symptom might look like. And so as maybe I was progressing or Tecfidera wasn't working for me, yeah. I didn't, I had no idea what that even looked like yeah. because I just didn't have the doctor around to help coach me through. So at the end of the year, I was having new lesions. So sidebar about support, did you feel like when you st- started experiencing all of this, um, that you, you'd never really gone to any MS society stuff. Never. Yeah. No, none of those dinners that they served. No. The meet and greets. Yeah. No, none of it. So, um, and that, that was always a hard one for me too, because, Mm -hmm. um, when I did go to them, um, I was different age than pretty much everybody else in the room. Um, and you see the, yeah, it, one thing it was scary, but also I realized that I got most of my, um, how I learned those things that you're talking about 
you know, is this relapse? Is this, you know, just another symptom? That kind of thing was, was kind of by trial and error too. And talking with people. Yeah. And those support groups. Right. But they didn't, because I was a different age and maybe just a different place than them. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, the conversation was never very helpful. Mm-hmm. So, um, like I said before, like learning to just, I got every MS book ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you would not believe like every MS diet book, every, you know, and, um, read as much as I possibly could, but it still doesn't really prepare you for that. Mm-mm. And I, I just wanted to do that kind of sidebar just because right. it is important something like this podcast or something like the Facebook group for this, um, I, I think is really important because when you are first diagnosed or if even just on your journey, you lose connections with the people in your life that would be there for you if you had a cold, you know, because they don't really understand that. And, um, they don't understand what you're going through and they can be supportive and they can be, you know, but you need, uh, you need somebody like you are for me now that has been through this right stuff and that you can have this conversation we're having right now. Right. So, um, that was just my community and connectivity (laughs) is so important. And I, and So. so, well, because I was trying to fit this ideal normal, Right. I was convinced that I could manage my disease and that I was taking the medicine to manage my disease and that I could pretend to be normal and that I didn't need to find these other secret societies or try to belong to anything other than what I was already belonging to because I could manage it. Little did I know that by not seeking out those additional supports and resources and expanding my community... I was short-sighting myself by thinking that the drugs were working well enough to keep things manageable. Right. Because what I thought was manage, like I thought the drugs were working in my favor and that I was just experiencing the disease where the disease was progressing and really hurting me almost invisibly and then suddenly the doctors are saying, well, we've got to switch you drugs because you still have all these lesions, even though you're on the Tecfidera. We've got to put you on something stronger. And then I had doctors saying, well, maybe it's not even the MS. Again, maybe it's Lyme disease. And maybe we, I think you really need, and so then we did test for Lyme disease. And then uh, sure enough, I show eight, six out of the eight antibodies associated with Lyme disease. So then I had this whole question of, well, which one is it? Because one mimics the other. And what do I need? Who do I believe? And the meds for MS have made me so much worse. Right. Because they suppress your immune system. Yeah. So much. It let the Lyme disease just run rampant, which acts like MS. So then it was just almost impossible to untangle until 2016 when I went to Columbia University the Center for Lyme Disease, Tick-Borne Illness, whatever it's called. I remember this. I remember Bill said that you were going there. Yeah. And they finally were able to tell me, you've got both. (laughs) MS is usually caused by an infection that turns your immune system against itself. Right. 
And in your case, it could have been mono back in high school. It could have been... The kissing disease. It could have been... Whatever. Yeah. Right? It could have been the Lyme disease. Whatever it was, it does not matter because yeah. those are not active infections at this current time, but they have resulted in lesions in your brain, cervical spine, and thoracic spine, including the corpus callosum, which is the region of the brain that is affected most by MS and only by MS. Yeah. So patients that don't have lesions in corpus callosum might be diagnosed with other things, but that's kind of the telltale right. for MS. And so... Good try, <laughs> but go home and get on some steroids. And that was the first time I'd ever started steroids. And so you went home. You did like the home thing where they had the ball, or did no. you go into the hospital? No, I just called my neurologist and said, "So I just got back from Columbia, and they're letting me know I have both, and that they recommend I should start Copaxone. But at first, I need to do a round of steroids." I said, okay, well, usually we do the solumedrol or whatever mm-hmm. and oral. Mm-hmm. Um, so they ordered up at the specialty pharmacy and then. So it was just the steroid pills? Mm-hmm. And then the prednisone <laughs> to wane me off. Yeah. And then I started Copaxone like a week later. Oh, wow. And that was just to try to get me at some kind of baseline understanding of what is your functionality, which is still a mess. Yeah. In terms of spasticity and clonus and uh, I don't even think it's technically drop foot. Yeah. My physical therapist likes to say that it's not. Maybe he's just trying to convince me that it's not. But that's the quality of guidance. Right. I had. So it was like fumbling my way in the dark of not knowing who to believe, trust, or what it even all meant. And so by the time I started Copaxone, that was in February of 2016. Okay. In April of 2016, I just happened across an article in the student newspaper or magazine at NKU about a student who had gone through the transplant maybe 10 years prior. Oh, wow. And so just reading, and like that magazine sat on my desk for a couple weeks and the headline story was about this student, and people kept telling me, like, you need to read it. And I'm like, just, it's one of those I'd yeah. resisted that yeah. connection for so long that it was hard, a hard pill to swallow, literally. And so then, but once I read the article, I'm like, this is so, so inspiring, and I need to find this Dr. Burt. And I think that day I sent an email and said, well, what do I need to do to learn more and be considered for this study is it still even going on and sure enough they were closing the window soon on enrolling new patients but invited me for an evaluation and I didn't make it until July because of scheduling um but yeah the rest is history really because July evaluation he took one look at me walking and he said we absolutely can help you yeah at the time I still had active lesions and so Ran it through insurance, who initially denied and then approved me December of 16. Okay. To go through transplant. And there are insurers who will cover this, including Medicaid. Yeah. And then a week later, insurance changed their mind. And so I said, okay, well, 
I'll be the good patient and I'll just figure it out and we'll do the appeals and I'll, I know they'll come through and do the right thing. And I spent months, well, five, six months trying to change their mind. Went back for a second evaluation in May of 17, just thinking, well, maybe another set of MRIs might show that yeah. I've gotten worse and it'll help us make the case that this is even more medically necessary for me. And <laughs> they continue to deny me, but the MRIs in May of 17 showed no activity. So that's where Dr. Burt was saying, well, maybe you're transitioning because you're still progressing. Right. But maybe you're transitioning into secondary progressive, and I can't treat that a year from now. If you want my protocol on a compassionate care basis, uh, because his protocol is so strict for the funding mechanism that he receives from the NIH, yeah. even to treat patients on compassionate care, he has to stick to that protocol, which excludes people over a certain age, or that haven't failed at least two drugs, or are secondary progressive or primary progressive. So, wait, I guess, can we go back just a second Please. to when he says that your lesions are no longer active, mm -hmm. how does that equate going into secondary progressive? Right. And that's still a question remaining. Yeah. He just had a feeling that there's a possibility. He wasn't um, he wasn't affirmative or okay. certain. He just had that concern, right? Okay. So it could be the diet. It could be that I was stressed less yeah. because I wasn't working at the time. <laughs> sure, sure. It could have been a whole host of things where maybe I just wasn't having any activity which in, firing up, which my, is what you want. Yeah, in my opinion and in my experience, like that's, that's what you want. You don't want him to be. That's just you know, being so, out yeah. of relapse, yeah. right? Or in remission. That's just being right. calm. <laughs> it's being zen, Jen. So it's almost like I felt, I feel like you're saying that he was almost like saying it would be the calm before the storm, sort of, to use a cliche, like Potentially. for you to you know, slip from there into secondary progressive, right. or, you know, um, interesting. So it was, it's, it's been a paranoia of mine since hearing that. Yeah. Um, because his pro and maybe it goes back to his protocol. Right. And it has nothing to do with whether or not I was actually progressing. Sure. Um, but in my mind and in my motivation, and compelling case for fundraising and convincing family to come through with the money. Sure. It's now or never. Right. Right. And it may be. That's the thing about this disease. It really, no, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what, you know, experience says, your friends who you know that have had MS, I could tell you my stuff all day, but it's such a volatile and um snowflake. mysterious and snowflake disease yeah like it's different for everyone yeah so um that i can absolutely understand why you would basically with him kind of telling you this in a way that is like we don't know but this may be what's gonna happen yes now or never like now let's Kick do it, it in a high gear if you can if you can do it do it because 
A, it would be most effective. Right. But B, when I looked at my other options in terms of medication out there, knowing how the two best on the market supposedly technically really did do me in. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. Like, why would I want to trust another drug? Right. To help me get better or slow down any progression because that's not, I mean, really all the drugs promise is to help slow progression, right? To help your body offset the inflammation and disease activity. Their their title is disease modifying drug. Right. So we want to slow it down. Yeah. Right. And this transplant, the promise is to halt it, stop it where it is. Yeah. Stop it dead in its tracks so that it doesn't get any worse than what it already is. So, can you give me a kind of a rundown of your understanding of how it works? The transplant. Yeah. Yes. So, like, what kind of tests do you need? Like, mm-hmm. what is the arc of treatment? Yes. And what to expect afterwards, I guess. Right. So when you initially submit your email to Northwestern to say, hey, I'm interested in this transplant. (laughs) Sure. Um, And Northwestern is not the only facility. There are others out there. There are some in other countries that people are defaulting to. There's some in even Denver and Seattle that have their own protocols. Mm -hmm. So in Chicago, which is my experience, uh, I emailed the nurse and said I'm interested in being considered as a patient mm-hmm. and here's my story and attached are my latest MRI reports mm-hmm. from your last two sets of MRIs. These are the drugs that I've tried and the date, the ranges of dates mm-hmm. by which I tried them and kind of the outcome or how I felt on them. These are the vitamins and or other things I might be taking and that's all they look at. So they don't really ask, do they ask you really anything about like your lifestyle, your diet, your exercise, your no stressors, anything like that? I think maybe during the initial conversations, once you're there. Yeah. Potentially. But, okay. um, you know, the one guy I interviewed was a beer salesman and loved his beer too, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I had been on such a healthy, clean diet for so long, just trying to eliminate any inflammation yeah. that I possibly could think of because of my rapid progression. Sure. Um, that I was just desperate to do everything and anything possible. So, you know, cutting a lot of the toxins out was easy for me from an early point because I started with pregnancy. Right. Right. And it was easy to just maintain that. That makes so much sense. Attitude and healthy habits because my focus was I need to have a healthy baby. Yeah. And healthy body for my healthy baby. Right. So like, because I had cut out everything for her, she was really technically my savior. I mean, I just just going to hold that over your head. So grateful. (laughs) I'm so grateful for her showing up when she did. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's literally just a blessing and I don't believe in any of that stuff. I know. Like I'm very scientific driven, but she showed up at exactly the right. Her soul knew when I needed her the most (laughs) and I'm just, she's amazing. So, um, uh, 
it's not easy to clean up your diet. It's not easy. It's so hard. Yeah. To just prepare mentally, physically, dietarily. Um, And I can see where that's a, it's a hesitation and a concern and a, well, I'm not healthy enough to. Right. I don't know that that's a big concern for Dr. Burt. Right. So once you get invited for your initial testing and evaluation, they do want to make sure your body's healthy enough to sustain this sort of mm -hmm. strong doses of chemo over a short period of time. And so they do put you through an uh, echocardiogram to look at your heart, an EKG Mm -hmm. to um, monitor how all of your systems function and flow. Yeah. Uh, Respiratory pulmonary function test. So that was tough because I had had an upper respiratory infection before I went for evaluation. (laughs) So that I I barely passed that. They give you the spirometer when you're in the hospital and have you practice with that. And um, because they don't want you to get a lung infection. Of course. And, you know, they do everything everything under the sun to support you and having the best experience possible. I cannot even speak highly enough about the phenomenal care at Northwestern. Um, And then I think there's time between the testing and when you actually get scheduled in order to address any concerns they might have. Because in their mind, like you even do a dental exam Mm-hmm. And to make sure you don't have any cavities or concerns with your teeth because they don't want you to have any oral surgery for at least a year okay. post-transplant just because of the risk of infection. Yeah. Because your mouth is a dirty place, believe it or not. <laughs> My mouth is dirty. <laughs> and so, like, if you had a cavity, you just... I do brush my teeth, just so you know. And, and floss, you and know. Floss. And so... <laughs> They work with you to make sure that, like, I had a toenail fungus that I had had for a long time, and he said, that needs to get cleared up before you come back for transplant. So So, they put me on a really heavy dose of antibiotics for a couple months, and by the time I went back, it was cleared up. But then I was very paranoid, like, is it really cleared up, and is this going to come back, and what What was your actual timeline with all of this? Like, what was your experience then? So I submitted all my paperwork and MRI reports in that July. Uh I was invited for testing by November. So that was a while. But I think at the time they were deciding how many more people they could enroll in their trial. Mm-hmm. And how many slots they had left because they were coming to the close of their three or five year window, whatever they had on their funding. And so when I went for evaluation, it was the question of will I be part of the control group or experimental group? And when I was leaving that initial meeting with him, it wasn't a question of which group, it was a question of if insurance will cover it. Yeah. Or not because we can still get you into either arm before the window closes. But if the window closes and insurance agrees to treat you, we can still treat you on a compassionate care basis. The whole okay. point is that you qualify that for the transplant, that you have acti- disease activity and whatever drugs 
because you have the disease activity despite being on this drug, mm-hmm. you qualify. And so if you've had a relapse within the past year, basically you'll qualify, right. which you've had. And so then after the initial evaluation, my testing was, that was July. Then I went back in November for all the testing, and it's a full two days of the EKG and echocardiogram, et cetera, et cetera. My insurance requested additional testing and wanted me to meet with a therapist, a mental health therapist, just to make sure I was of mental capacity, which I was grateful for at the time because Dr. Bird is very conscientious of warning people about the risks associated with because you're in the hospital for such an extended period of time and they're taking your immune system to literally nothing, too low to count. Yeah. Not literally nothing because that's myeloblative, whereas Dr. Burt's protocol is non-myeloblative, which means he leaves some cells there. He leaves you some immune system so that if they have to boost it up or ramp it up to fight infection, that your body's more capable of warding that off. You're not just completely bottomed out. Correct. And so they monitor everything so closely and carefully. Every day you're looking at your counts and every day you get blood drawn and every day, multiple times a day, at least every two to three hours, Mm -hmm. nurses are checking in on you and even the slightest question of a tickle in my throat. Well, how does that tickle feel now? Is it a sore throat or is it just a tickle? Is it dry air or is it something more than that? They are so hyper tuned into preventing any complication because they want success right for all patients and so i had zero complications and even through all my testing i passed all of the testing without question or complications so other than the toenail fungus (laughs) that i needed to clear up before i could schedule and maybe that was part of it between evaluation and the testing i think they wanted to give my body time to clear up that toenail infection, which is hard to clear up. It takes yeah, almost six months. And so they gave me six months on whatever strong antibiotic yeah, to get rid of any sign of that infection so that my body wouldn't run the risk of it hiding out right. and becoming a complication later during transplant. So I was scheduled for transplant to begin at the end of November. And insurance said no. My first insurance that we ran it through said no. So my secondary insurance, after they got the no from the first insurance company, my secondary insurance said, well, yeah, we'll cover it. Yeah. So then I was scheduled in December of 16 to start the very following week. And then insurance changed their mind. And so then we had to put it off until... We could get insurance to approve, which ended up never happening. Yeah. And so they just kept waiting to schedule. And by the time I was able to come up with the money from family in the summer, so in May I went back for another set of testing and evaluation Mm -hmm. and MRIs just to try to show if there was any progression or new lesions or hey, insurance, look, I'm getting worse, and I need this now more than ever. And that's when the, yeah. So that was May of 17. So seven months later, 
that's when Dr. Burt said, well, you could be transitioning to secondary progressive. And so we need to do this now. I went back to family. My parents sold their house. Yeah. <laughs> and not everybody has this, right? Not right. everybody has family that can come up with the money to help you out. And not everybody has a network of friends and resources to help with the phenomenal fundraiser. Yeah. And I was just amazingly supported by family in order to make this happen and know how amazing it is that family could support me in that way because there are so many people out there still fundraising and still choosing to fundraise a lesser dollar amount in order to go to Mexico because it's a phenomenal facility doing a similar protocol yeah. in very different environment and in a different means but very similar outcomes um people are raising money to go to russia people are trying to get in anywhere they can because it's become so cost prohibitive for example the university of cincinnati is now offering this yeah we talked about that because i'd seen it on one of the in the group i guess and so it's not even through their neurology department. It's through hematology. Interesting. Because technically it's a chemotherapy. It's a procedure using chemotherapy huh. for a blood-related disease. And so the hematologists are in charge of providing HSCT for hmm. cancer patients. Right. And that's the thing that gets me the most about all of this being a question still for the CDC or anybody really is that there's more than 40 years of research behind the effectiveness of chemotherapy and obliterating the immune system and the negative disease cells, targeting those disease cells and eliminating them, Right. using your body's own stem cells then to come back in and just reboot and create a brand new set of immunity or a set of new white cells that don't carry the bad messaging. It's when you think about the science of it and you think about the, the 40 plus years of research proving effectiveness, it doesn't seem scary. And having now gone through it and realizing not only are you, scientifically grounded by 40 plus years of positive outcome not just for ms but all of these other autoimmune diseases and the cancer side of things it you're so supported every day by the nurses and the phenomenal teams that don't want anything negative to happen so that there is no record of anything negative. Yeah. You don't want to even come close to that with any drug out yeah. there. Yeah. Because you're on a drug for how I mean how what's the longest period of time you were ever on a drug? Uh I'm going to say it was Avenox. I think I was on it for 3 and a half years. And yeah. beyond that, um, what can Avenex? Well, what could Avenex say about its ability to slow progression? Yeah, in general, well, right? Like some I, people have success for longer. Like some people have success on Copaxone for fifteen years, and right. maybe they just have a mild form of the disease we call MS. I mean, it's part of that snowflake idea, right? Right? Absolutely. So, I mean. 
I Avonex, I think there's another drug that sorry, I've been on everything, just so you right. guys know. Um, but there's another drug that's very similar to it. And um I basically transitioned from Avonex to that. Mm-hmm. It's a I don't remember. Anyway, um, you know, and it's like how how do you know that this is the thing that works? And how do you know mm-hmm. that this is the you know, so beyond that, I think the the two most effective ones for me were the Tysabri, which they use in many autoimmune diseases now, you know, like mm-hmm. Crohn's disease and stuff, um, and the Delinia, but mm-hmm. it didn't stop a relapse, mm-hmm. you know, from happening. But I feel more confident in, in my day-to-day living within that drug than I have any anything else Mm -hmm. not to say that it's necessarily working as well as it should be i'm doing air quotes just so you know (laughs) um i don't know well because it's supposed to be slowing progression or keeping progression at bay and And maybe you know you look at my you look at my history and i seem to bounce back you know, I I do have some long term issues, pain, numbness. I it's dangerous to cook <laughs> waste because of because the waste. Because you can't yeah. feel the heat. Yeah, you can't yeah. feel the heat or the cold. Um, but like, uh, so it, for all intents and purposes, the fact that, you know I have had some pretty terrible relapses in the past, but for the most part. I've stayed recovered. Yeah, I've recovered yeah. in state and I'm not I'm luckier than a lot of people mm-hmm. and that's the thing. None of this is necessarily like uh, at least of the disease modifying drugs mm-hmm. like it's not necessarily um proven that any of this makes that much of a difference mm-hmm. because MS is not just a cookie cutter disease that you understand. Right. So, um, you know, the fact that they do, you know, 10, 20 years of studies on some of these drugs before they even put them out. Mm. And there have been drugs, as I'm sure you know, that have had the, all of those years of research and been, been pulled right back off, you yeah, know. Right, because of complications. Yeah, because of complications. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know... Um, so it's interesting to me to know that the history, I mean, it totally makes sense now that you talk about it, this mm-hmm. history of the HSCT, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, you um, got it. Uh, but the, that it has that much kind of history behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I never really thought about it in the, you know, with the chemotherapy and everything about how it's been a, a long standing um, treatment for cancer. And, you know, I, I guess I just never made that correlation before. And I think that that's really important because you can, I mean, it can be intimidating. Yeah. It can be intimidating and scary. And all of us probably have people in our lives that have gone through cancer and chemotherapy and all of that stuff. And it seems like scary word. It's a stigmatized sort of thing, but also, you know, seeing you and knowing you and knowing your experience with this and um, knowing that, yes, you're a very brave person in my book, you know, um, and there are many people out here probably listening to this right now that have, you know, used that courage to 
go forward and do something new and different and hopefully it makes a big difference in your life you know and I think that's really admirable and really wonderful I think you're kind to say so because (laughs) in my view I was desperate yeah well it is which to me is not courage (laughs) no courage takes a sort of desperation sometimes yeah you know you have to get to that point where you know you you don't know what else to do so you like just push forward into the thing that seems in your gut like it'll make a difference Mm -hmm. you know and you're not you're a very intelligent um empathetic like incredible person so like (laughs) you're welcome but like but i mean i think that for you know for you to really spend time recognizing like here are the things that are happening in my life and here are the ways that my disease is progressing and i just this is what i'm gonna do you know it's not like all in i'll just take another i'll i'll switch over to this other drug that's just like the drug i had before you know yeah like you're saying okay i've I've done some research. Mm-hmm. I've read about this. Mm-hmm. I think that it could definitely make a difference. It makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So let's let's freaking do it. Well, and the outcome that I was looking for or the hope that I was looking for yeah. presented by other people's stories. Mm-hmm. And then once I talked to my neurologist and said, so I just learned about this as an option. What do you think? What do you know about it? She's like, oh, yeah. No, I have three patients that did it a few years ago. And I'm like, but why didn't you tell me about it? And I, and she, and I don't know why more neurologists don't share the news. I don't know why it's not an option. I think that sometimes it's because... You know, when I was talking about old Ben Stein, my old, his name was, I think his name was something Perlman, Ben Perlman. (laughs) Um, The, the, you know, he was always one to go like, I, some people say that this works and some people say that this works. It's up to you because he doesn't want to be culpable or liable Mm. for the decisions that you make in case, because and also because he's just a regular neurologist and not like a specialist and doesn't deal with this every day, probably at that point he was a little older and just wasn't reading in the same journals that me and my brain were like digging into sure. that kind of stuff. Um, I think that people who aren't immersed in the cultural culture of MS, right, are are scared of of introducing something that seems more radical. Like, honestly, you know that Avonex, like the, the drugs behind these um, injectables have been on the market for 30 something years, which is just nuts in some ways because of the expense of these drugs. You know, I don't want to get into that right now, but like, you know, all of this has been there for so long and that feels comfortable. And even if they know, you know, she has two clients that have already done this, you know, she's not going to go to every person that she meets that, you know, like every patient, like, sure, this is what you should do. Right. This is my funny voice that I use sometimes. (laughs) Anyway, um, it's not what all doctors doctors sound like. (laughs) But doctors don't necessarily hear about it or know about it or learn about it because they know what was taught to them in med school, which was, 
here are the list of symptoms that could be this particular disease. Right. And when you hear a patient list out these particular symptoms, these are the tests that you run in order to help confirm whether or not it's more than likely they have this disease. Because right. as the my diagnosing doctor said, well, the clock on the wall's right twice a day, so it's probably MS. What does that even mean? Well, like he was basically <laughs> pointing out, yeah, you've got lesions in the right part of your brain, but there could be a whole host of other things. So you really should do a spinal tap to confirm it, and we should do this optic field test. Oh, spinal maybe. taps. Well, I didn't. I've never had a spinal tap. I've refused them. I've had two. And I, my visual field test is amazing. Yeah. I passed it with flying colors. Yeah. Um, can I tell you a quick story Please. about my 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 second spinal tap that I had? <laughs> um, I had moved back in with my parents, as happens. You know, you're young and have this new disease. I think it was 24, 25 when that happened. Um, and I was invincible because even though I can't really use my arms and legs that well, I'm still invincible, right? Absolutely. So uh, I got my spinal tap in the morning and they were like, just keep like laying down for the next 12 hours. Thanks. And I was like, I want to go to Costco. (laughs) So my dad took me to Costco against his will. And I rode around in one of those carts like bent over like an old lady. I've never been to Costco. It's well, it's like Walmart. <laughs> it's like a Sam's Club. It's Walmart. It's like huge. Sure. And most people should ride those little carts to get around. I haven't so been big. to Walmart in like oh, twenty years. I haven't been in at least when I went I tried to go to the one over on Ridge Road off a of Ridge Road. Just it had been people closed watch. for five years. No, <laughs> I went to go get something and it had been closed for like five or six nice. years. So nice. I understand. But no, like, you know, at that age, you think you're invincible, invincible. even mm. though you're blind in one eye and have <laughs> your appendages are wobbly and do not work anymore. Yeah. So um, that was my last spinal tap one. <laughs> and I refused them after that. And yeah, no, I've never ha- had one. And two, uh, it was one of those moments in my life where I realized that I was a very stubborn person and needed to kind of get over that and just listen and do do what they tell me. So. It's not easy. It's not an easy lesson to learn. No, and that's one of the things that, like, going into transplant, I didn't even do that much research about it before going in. For me, it felt like the less I know, the easier it'll be to give up control Okay. and expectation. That's Yeah, I can see why that would be. Because I think people get ideas in their head of what it should be like or feel like or seem like or... And because it's so different for everybody. It's so different. I said, you know, I'm just... In order to really... Um, deal with my own progression mm-hmm. and being forced to slow down so much yeah. and take so much time just to walk anywhere um, to really be more mindful about being truly in the moment has been a practice that honestly now post-transplant has been easier to get out of or fall out of mm-hmm. and i keep reminding myself like 
get back to slowing down, get back to really grounding yourself in the now because I literally, as I was tripping over myself trying to get places, I just had to slow down Yeah, because sometimes you just have to pause and reset the direction of your feet in order to turn a little to the left so you don't (laughs) fear so much to the right. Um, But I would take the opportunity to stop and acknowledge and see what's around me. And so the whole time I was in the hospital, it was very much taking, just slowing down to take in what was happening in the very moment right? and not be stressed, but just observe and be mindful of the drip of the meds and watching it and welcoming it and just trying to let my body be at ease with everything that was happening, not anxious and just trusting in the care and the place and the science and that all would be well. And maybe that lack of anxiety and lack of need for control helped me sail through literally with zero complications. Yeah. That's important. That's so, I mean, I feel like you stress is a stressor is a major factor. Mm-hmm. Stress is a major factor of like how this disease affects your life. Right. Mm-hmm. So for you to just kind of like open your arms and go like, just do it. Let's, let's get this, you know, and you're, I, I think that's awesome. <laughs> I wish I could it. be like that more, you know? Well, like and, just... <laughs> and it, it's, it's one of those, it took a lot of time to get there yeah. and practice. And I was forced uh, in a way to practice yeah. and embrace it in order just to cope with my, the progression of right. not being able to walk well or far or, you know, like, as I declined so rapidly, the only choice I had was to slow down right. or I... sit down or <laughs> lay down with it. And I refused to lay down with it. I wasn't going to lay down to this disease. So you just had your year, mm-hmm. your year anniversary of uh, the procedure. Is that the right thing to it call it? It is a procedure. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, you you went to Chicago this last week mm-hmm. and it met with everybody, did your tests, did all those things. Yeah. And what? how does it look now, like now a year in? I have no disease activity. Ridiculous. I have no progression. That's so great. I have no new lesions. I refused the gadolinium. Because I seem to be off the charts with gadolinium in my body. <laughs> we all are. From Indeed. all of our MRIs. But I have researched some of that yeah. in terms of side effects. And they it causes numbness and tingling, joint pain, yeah. etc. Symptoms similar to MS. And so as I've been trying to eliminate the gadolinium from my system, I've seen even lessening of additional symptoms. That's great. Like, I had some numbness and tingling in my right calf and in my feet still, even post-transplant, that I thought, well, it's just lingering symptoms because, again, it halts progression. It just stops the disease where it is, and you just don't get any worse. So you still deal with all the old damage. Right. And 
we call it a roller coaster of some of the old symptoms, especially when you are stressed, flaring up, right? Like, gee whiz, how is it 7.30 already? We just talk forever. Um, There's some editing. That's there's going to be a here. lot of editing. Sorry about what? that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, so the roller coaster, it's interesting. My physical therapist looked back at just what I've been able to do because I've been, been in therapy since November. Of, yeah. I got home October 29th, and a couple weeks later I started physical therapy because I wanted to get better. And recovering neurological damage takes a lot of time. Yeah. I have black holes in my brain that need to be rebuilt or find new pathways right. to reconnect the signals, and that's why my left leg is still such a wreck. Um but also why so many things have improved. And so my physical therapist noted the roller coaster where just a couple months ago I was doing stellar and had great times and great capacity to either walk a longer distance in six minutes or get up and walk to a cone, turn around and sit back down. Yeah. Different tests there. I'm performing better now than I was a year ago, but in the in between, some months I'd have great days and other months I'd have lousy days. Just like with MS, you mm -hmm. wake up and some days they're great days, other days not so great. Um, so you still have the experience of roller coaster and Especially when stress flares, you still have your old symptoms revisit. Yeah. Like you aren't just magically healed. <laughs> it's going to take time for me to recover and regain. Just like I'm sure with any relapse. Yeah. It takes time to get back to this baseline. But I fully expect within the next year, because they say you can experience improvements up to two years... Um, that I'll recover even more and maybe even find some other drug out there to help me with remyelination or yeah. so, rebuilding some of those black holes. Just so um, we can get some perspective on your, your habits or the things that you've been doing since the last year, um, how often are you going to physical therapy just once a week, but then, you know, he helps me really stretch out and break tone. So mm -hmm. tone is one of my biggest issues that has gotten significantly better and in warmer weather mm -hmm. is better than cold. Okay. Um, so he spends a lot more time stretching me out, which feels amazing, like yeah. my own private yin practice with <laughs> assistance. But then we do concentrated exercises that I'm supposed to then take home and practice on my own. And if I don't get too busy or caught up with work and the stress in my life, yeah. I do do those exercises. I try to ride two to three miles on a stationary bike every day. I do sure. arm weights. I'm finally now able to do a real yoga practice Yay. on my own in the middle of a mat and not like hugging the wall or on the floor. <laughs> when I was over, I saw your, your mat up at, yeah. you know, when we were... Yeah, so it's been set great. up and occasionally I could get on it and do more like floor work, but now yeah. So I've have a goal to learn to ride a bike outside again and I haven't 
I've practiced once and we need to get the tires fixed on my trike so you can just take that yeah. for a while. Well and get that confidence and yeah. stamina on. Um Do you are you on any other medication at this point? None. At all? I take an antiviral to protect from getting the shingles. Yeah. Oh, the shingles. I don't want the shingles. They are the worst. Because when they obliterate your immune system and take you to zero, you lose. We need to check my titers to see if I retained any of my immunizations. Right. But I don't want the shingles. No one wants this <laughs> Um <laughs> So, no, I'm on an antiviral. Well, and actually, Dr. Burt told me I could stop taking that. And I'm paranoid, so I'm going to finish out the month that I have. <laughs> Are you taking any vitamins or anything I take like multivitamins. Yeah, multivitamins, so vitamin D. Um, Which, by the way, fish I Fish oil. I read an article recently because, you know, there are all those articles. Um, but it was basically talking about how, like, most people don't need vitamin D. They don't need that extra supplement. Um, and I started – I think my mom may have sent it to me. But then halfway through the thing, halfway through the article, they were like, but people with autoimmune diseases and MS Absolutely. and stuff like that should definitely yes. take that. Yes. And especially because I'm kind of a vampire and don't get outside as mm-hmm. much as I probably should. It's definitely – and I can, I, I can tell a difference when I take all of my, my vitamins – Yes. You know? Yes. Huge so, difference. So I, I definitely do, you know. Yeah. Huge difference. Great. And then I do intermittent fasting now, have been for a few months, just trying to kick my body into autophagy, which helps to slough off old dead cells and create, mm-hmm. helps your body create new cells so that maybe we can rebuild some of my brain cells that are missing. Um <laughs> I need to do more meditation because there are scientific studies evidencing the increased connectivity and brain activity when you practice meditation on a regular basis up to just 10 minutes a day. So I need to do, be more mindful about working that into my schedule on a daily basis. I love how mindful you are about all of this. I think that, um, a lot of us in our daily you know, hubbub of life working, you know, life gets in the way. Yeah. It gets in the way. So uh, seeing you and knowing you and like knowing how present you are a lot of the times, and I'm sure that it's not like constant presence, right? You have family, you have a dog, you have work, you have all these things, um, this podcast, but like, (laughs) you know, there are lots of things in life, but I, I really appreciate the way that you, still are mindful of the things that you're, you, you practice self-care in a way that I think is really important. Thank you. And is, um, very, uh, uh, inspiring. So, um, I, I really appreciate like being able to talk to you about this because I think that most of us probably during the, our daily walk of life, like forget, to take care of ourselves. Absolutely. And I do too, <laughs> uh, you know? Yeah. And so it, all of it is okay. Right. Because we're only doing the best we know right now in this moment. Yeah. And so just offering ourselves that grace Yeah. and know that we can intend and 
will try to do better. And if you don't, sometimes it's fine. Correct. But just remember to love yourself, I Correct. guess. Yeah. And acknowledge where you are and, and that it's a struggle for everyone and life gets in the way. Yeah. And that's okay, too. And it's okay. Yeah. Now, it's been an honor to talk with you and learn more about your story, <laughs> know how we are connected. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's really important to have people in your life that, I think I said this earlier, but, you know, our experiences are different, even though it's the same disease. But there are so many parallels that I think are really important to be able to, you know, when we talked a little bit about this earlier, but like going to support groups and things like that when I was younger, there was no one. There was no one to talk to. So I'm a bookworm. That's where I found my information um, for the most part. And now, you know, I'm almost 40. I've had this for like forever. Like to be able to have a friend or have a peer in my life that understands, you know, I think that that's amazing and encouraging. You're encouraging. Thank you. I'm here anytime. You. <laughs> Thank you. Even though I may not be able to help you with whatever you might be going through because you might be experiencing it at a, dif- a different level. It doesn't. But knowing that I'm here to support you yeah, in that's that not experience. What matters. what matters is that we have an open mind and an open ear for each other. Um, and, and I'll support you through no matter what. I love you. Oh, I love you. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and talk with me and tell your story to yeah. and be op- open and vulnerable and open to the possibilities of maybe someday pursuing this. Yeah. Or whatever comes next with the research. Who knows? Possibilities are endless. Thank you. You're welcome. Love you. Love you too. Be sure to visit our website, hsctwarriorspodcast.com, where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and access the latest HSCT research and resources. Special thanks to musical genius Bill Allitzhauser for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Take a moment to leave a review because your feedback will help to develop even better episodes, and your ratings will help other people find the show. Tune in next Wednesday for a brand new episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Be well. Be well.